Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 477 of the podcast. It's June 7th, 2023. Our guest today is Zainab Tan. She's a professor at the MIT Sloan School of Management and the author of a new book, The Case for Good Jobs. So you'll hear more about that in a minute, more about her background and her previous appearance here on the podcast. So for links to all of that and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 477. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Lean Blog Interviews. My guest today, she's a returning guest. Zainab Tan is a professor of the practice at MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, Previously, she was on the faculty of the Harvard Business School. She's received numerous awards for teaching excellence uh, at both schools. Um, She was previously a guest in episode 228 of the podcast here, 2015. I can't believe uh, it's been that long. We discussed her first book then, The Good Job Strategy. And she has a new book released in June called The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to Everyone's Work. Uh, So, Zainab, thank you for for being back here. It's great to see you again. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I can't believe 228th episode. And where are we now? (laughs) Four, more more like 480. Wow. Congratulations on having such a successful podcast and numerous books. Well, thank you. And... um, Thank you. Congratulations, um, you know, with the release of your latest book. You know, there's a lot um, to dig into and to, to ask about what you've learned and what companies are doing um, since the publication of the first book, which I, I think made a compelling case um, for, for good jobs. And, you know, that's the title of the second book. But for people who aren't familiar, if, if they didn't hear the first episode, not to repeat the whole episode, but how would you summarize, you know, first off, what that means, good jobs? Yeah, and I can maybe give a quick summary of what was included in that first book uh, because yeah. I'm, you know, I'm from the operations management world, and and I started doing my research looking at retail supply chains, and I was focused on retail, um, retail as an industry, and in that particular industry, I saw two different approaches to profitability. So the very dominant approach was to see employees as a cost to be minimized, constantly focusing on low pay, you know, as few people as possible, getting as much work done as possible. And and that emphasis on low investment in people resulted in high turnover, which then resulted in so many operational problems, which of course then hurt sales and, and, and profitability, which then made it very difficult to invest in people. And then this vicious cycle continued. So that was the dominant approach. But then there was another way. Um, there was another approach, which was to see employees not as a cost, but as real human beings who can drive performance, drive profitability, drive growth, and invest heavily in them. Um, and, and, and these companies, because they invested heavily in their employees, operated in a virtuous cycle of low turnover, strong operational performance, strong sales and profitability, which then allowed them to invest further in their employees. But this virtuous cycle didn't work on its own. When I examined these companies, they were Costco, Quick Trip, uh, Equiminion Store Chain with gas stations, Trader Joe's, and, and a Spanish retailer. I found that the key to their success was a set of operational choices and operational design that increased the productivity and contribution of their employees. So when that first book came out, I expected pushback from a lot of executives saying, oh, you know, no, that's not true. You know, we can't, we can't afford to pay more. We can't do this. We can't do that. And instead, what I got, Mark, which was, you know, a huge pleasant surprise to me was so many leaders reached out from, you know, one largest companies to dog walking businesses saying, hey, you know that vicious cycle you described? That's us. And we want to get out. And the other system that you described, we believe that's a better system and we want to get there. But they felt like they were trapped. They didn't know how to make a case for it. And they didn't know how to implement system change. So, so I wrote the second book. Um, and, and, and since then, I started a nonprofit called Good Jobs Institute. 
And we work with, you know, more than two dozen companies in a wide range of industries. And one of our advisors is Jamie Bonini from Toyota, oh, by the way, yeah. uh, that your 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 uh, listeners might find that interesting because mm-hmm. I'm an operations person. So I have roots in TPS, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and so this book um, tells what I learned, what mm-hmm. we learned at Good Jobs Institute. And and before we talk more about like trying to make that case and trying to drive system change, I mean, first off, I, I was wondering, has the definition of good jobs evolved or is it, is it still pretty consistent of what the principles and practices are in that system? You know, it hasn't evolved. And, you know, when I studied low cost retailers and found those four operational choices that enabled this high performance system. I called them focus and simplify, standardize and empower, cross-train and operate with Slack. Um, I started seeing that they apply outside retail too. So we've seen them work at call centers, at uh, senior living facilities, in restaurants, in pest control. So so much wider range of uh, contexts. And this is something that I've learned since you know the first book came out. Yeah. And in particular... Um... As an industrial engineer, and you know, we start thinking queuing theory and you know operating with slack, like just how necessary that is. If you think of factory <laughs> flow and machines and what Toyota would teach us about the goal, not you know, the goal is not to keep every machine 100 percent utilized, that you need exactly. to focus on flow, you need to have slack. And the same thing, tell us more about how that applies, you know, with with people or um in in, in different types of jobs. Why? It, it it seems um, it's it's misleading if people think oh 100 utilization should be the goal. I mean, first exactly, Mark. I mean, if you don't want your machines to be 100 percent utilized because they need maintenance, they need this and that. Imagine your people. I mean, we need even more. And in so many environments, and if you remember your queuing theory, the more variability there is in your system, the more slack you need. Right. So and and in, you know, my world is largely service operations and the world of services. There is so much variability uh, that comes from your customers. And what I have also found that because these companies are not truly operations focused, they have a ton of self-inflicted variability, too, which makes the slack even more important. And when humans do not have slack, they make mistakes. They are burnt out. They have anxiety. They quit. Their managers quit. They can't process an improvement. They can't be involved in improvement. So there are all sorts of costs associated with it. And you mentioned how, you know, this is obvious to someone who studied operations or studied Toyota. Um, but one of the leaders who reached out to me after the first book came out was Greg Foran, who was at the time the CEO of uh, Walmart USA. And now Greg is the CEO of Air New Zealand. And he had an interview with Harvard Business Review. And when he was referring to the good job strategy, he said, it's blindingly obvious. Like these things that operate with Slack, standardize and empower. I didn't come, you know, I didn't invent these things. Uh, They've been around as best practices for decades. But I mean, so I, I, I managed to graduate from MIT Sloan without really taking any finance courses, which was surprising to a lot of my classmates. A lot of people can can graduate with really without getting deep into operations or queuing theory. So it it may be blindingly obvious, but people it seems like just don't get exposed to a lot of these concepts. And I found that's particularly true in healthcare. If we remove even the MBA question out of it, like just people aren't taught these things in their other disciplines. Yes, and at the same time, what they're taught is you pay market pay, right? When you look at your employees. What is right is to treat them as any other input to your production and pay market rates. But what I have seen since the first book came out, I think one of the things I've learned about a good job is how important pay is. And I wish I talked about it even more in the first book, because, you know, of course, pay alone doesn't make a job a good job. But when you don't make enough and you don't have agency in your life, nothing else works. I mean, we've seen people working multiple jobs. We've seen people who are constantly thinking about, do I put food on the table? Can I take my child to the doctor when she is sick? Oh, I don't have enough money. I can't pay my rent. I can't pay this or that. And they're constantly thinking about money. And that, of course, that creates stress. And that stress 
hurts them physically, their physical health, it hurts them mentally, it lowers their cognitive functioning. And then um, these workers can't perform very well. There's a ton of research that shows how low pay drives more mistakes, drives lower productivity. So workers find themselves in a, in a vicious cycle of poverty. Low pay causes poor performance, and then poor performance means they can't get out of poor pay. And that vicious cycle was striking. Yeah. And that, that vicious cycle is there uh, really often, unfortunately, in healthcare organizations. Um, not, I, I don't want to take you know necessarily the whole conversation of healthcare, but I can't help doing that. You know, having having done a lot of work in healthcare the last fifteen years. You know, first off, before coming back to pay and agency and engagement and respect or dignity, um, the question of slack. Yeah. Um, you know, people in healthcare on one one side will say correctly so. Um, we're, we are not an assembly line. Okay. Yeah. Great. We're not trying to turn you into a factory. We're trying to help you be a better hospital. And they'll say also true. We have so much more variation as, as you pointed out, but then they'll say, but we want these beds and the MRI machine and everything to be hundred percent utilized. Mm-hmm. Like mm, your point about with their increased variation, the need for slack in healthcare is, is so much higher. Do, have you been able to hey. um, open people's eyes to that in healthcare? And you wonder why nurses, there's a nurse shortage, right? It's because it's not because there aren't enough nurses. It's because nurses are not willing to work under those conditions where they can't take care of their patients. Uh, We worked with a few senior living organizations. That's the closest that I got to healthcare. And, And I saw the effect of not operating with Slack in devastating ways. Because, and, and, and what is difficult, Mark, is many of these organizations are run like businesses. And the, the, way, the reason I say that is because they look at spreadsheets and they make decisions based on looking at spreadsheets. So, so you might say, hey, you don't have enough nurses, but then the, um, the, 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 the leaders of these organizations might say, hey, we're looking at our numbers and we look at our workload. We have more than enough nurses. In fact, we do have some slack. And the reality is they don't have any idea how much workload there is and how much more people might need time to be able to take care of um, patients. But I've seen, you know, caregivers who want to do a good job, not being able to take a resident to the bathroom for 45 minutes. These are older people who are the most vulnerable in these senior living facilities. And when you're understaffed, yes, you're looking at your numbers, you can see that maybe it doesn't make sense to add more labor. But when you look at what is happening to people, to caregivers and to residents, the situation is really terrible. It it, it is in a lot of um in a lot of settings. And, and there's a couple of things that come to mind when you talk about the spreadsheets. It seems from what I've seen and, and what I hear from people that staffing levels are more likely to be set by some sort of benchmark comparison than they are based on actually knowing and understanding. So as an industrial engineer, I have my bias of you need to understand the actual work mm-hmm. and how long does it actually take to do it well and to look at variation. And I think of one example we went through and listed out all of the tasks a nurse in an inpatient hospital was supposed to do in an hour. And it was 80 minutes worth of work. Yep. And then it's putting the nurses in a really unfair position of now you decide which tasks you're going to skip. And if they guess wrong and there's a bad outcome, they get blamed, which is really, really unfair. Yep. And what those models, as you say, they underestimate the 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 mean, the amount of work, the average work workload, but but also they underestimate the variability in workload. Right. They think that the variability is a lot tighter than it actually is. And again, when you have more variability, you require more slack in your system. So, so what we advise companies to do is if they don't feel like they can increase staffing levels, we say, okay, then take out all that unnecessary, wasteful work from the front lines. And in so many settings, including senior living, we have seen front lines to be bombarded by so many requests from the home office. 
finance asked them to do something. HR asked them to do something. You know, the um, logistics asked them to do something. Merchandising asked them to do something. And the workload in the front lines is so much higher than anyone had ever estimated. So we say, be customer-centered and ask yourself, which of these tasks don't add any value to the customer? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which of these tasks make your employee's life difficult? We've seen instances in retail, for example, to move away from healthcare a little bit. We've seen instances where a merchant will say, hey, I want you to create this display. And then the next day, ask them to redo that display. Now, the workload calculations do not take into account that extra work. And by the way, there's not even extra workload, but it's demoralizing when your work is wasted that way. So one of the most powerful way, and I said, you know, subtract workload, subtract workload variability as much as possible. And oftentimes, the best way to do this is to involve upstream functions, upstream functions in product design, in in, uh, marketing, in sales, in logistics, et cetera. And I think, you know, there was one upstream example, um, an interview that that I read that you did about the book, looking at call centers. There's the opportunity to make sure you've got the right staffing level, that there's enough slack for the sake of customer service, um, call waiting times, not stressing out employees who are getting yelled at by people who've been waiting too long. There's, there's, um, there's, there's that element of it. But then there's this question, I think of, this might be the upstream you're referring to, Going and addressing some of the reasons why customers are having to call to begin with. Can you share an example of that or look at that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, there is one company, and this is the reason that this comp this example gets to me is because how little many companies prioritize operations and operational excellence. There are some upstream fixes that could be implemented that improve the life of workers, that improve customer satisfaction, that improve productivity, people are aware of these problems and no one does anything about them because that's not a priority for these businesses. They have so many other things that get in the way. So one company that we work with, um, maybe close to a third of the calls came because of mistakes in billing. and. Fixing this would have substantially reduced workload. Fixing this would substantially improve the customer experience. And it would have enabled the company to pay their workers a living wage. Because when you increase productivity, now you can also pay people more. And it was such a low-hanging fruit. And it never got done Mm -hmm. because it was never prioritized. And I was thinking it wasn't, it was actually wasn't an interview. It was a piece. It was an excerpt from your book that was in um, Harvard Business Review. Right. Um, and and I'll, I'll link to that uh, in the show notes. And it, it was, it was um, somewhere as I read it over a cup of coffee um, this morning, it was somewhere between sobering and disheartening yeah. your assessment of how little attention executives pay to the frontline work or, 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 their, or their perception of how that just doesn't matter. For company performance. And it seems like that's back to two different mental models of workers as a cost versus workers as uh, someone, a partner and invest in. There's a different mental model of saying, well, the frontline work is everything mm-hmm. versus thinking somehow the frontline work isn't worth looking at. Can, can you yeah. share a little bit more? And I think the mental yeah. models, Mark, Mark, are, if you if you start as a high, higher level, the mental models are between being customer-centric and financial centric. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Financial centric is I want to improve sales. I want to improve profitability. I know and I'll do whatever it takes. Right. And um customer centric is I want to win by constantly improving the value and service that I offer to my customers. That's how I'm going to win. And once you have that as your compass, once you say that that's my ultimate objective then of course you don't want to live with high turnover. Of course you want to prioritize operational excellence. Of course you want to invest in your people. But if that's not your mental model, if your mental model is I'm going to increase sales and profitability, whichever way it is possible, then you can buy other companies. You can add more products. You can add more services. You can open more more units. And you can 
you can, and so many companies do, live with operational mediocrity. And as an operations person, this is disheartening to me too. And um, yeah. But there's, um, and there's that same battle or that same struggle, um, again, just, you know, quickly on healthcare. Is it patient-centric? Is it staff-centric or, you know, at the same time or uh, financial-centric? And there are a lot of people, again, when you read, you know, stories about people who get burned out, decide to leave healthcare, it's it's not as simple as, you know, I hear sometimes healthcare executives are dismissive about, oh, our nurses will leave for 25 cents an hour more. I'm like, I don't know if that's really why. It seems like it's more about- That I believe, you know, that I do believe too, Mark, because- for people, we've seen this in company after company. If you're not making enough money to take care of your family, pay is, this is why like pay is so important. If you don't make enough money to take care of your family, then high turnover is guaranteed. Now, just paying enough doesn't make the job a good job. If you're, if, if you're a nurse and you can't take care of your patient, then of course that's not a good job. And if you, if you find something that pays just the same, but better work, uh, you'll go someplace else. But that, that I, um, that I wouldn't be surprised because I've seen so many examples, not in the, in the healthcare setting, uh, outside nursing homes and senior living, but in so many other contexts. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the subtitle of, of your new book here, when you talk about dignity, pay, and meaning in whatever order, you know, that needing all of those healthcare has inherently high meaning, hopefully has high dignity, and then hopefully has good enough pay. You know, but I think there's a difference between somebody looking for the difference between $9.25 an hour and $15 an hour, Mm -hmm. if that's even a living wage, depending on where they are, versus a nurse where the difference might be Mm-hmm. incrementally small from like $35 to 35, yeah. 25, you know, I, I've, I've talked to executives in healthcare where I think they're doing a great job in reducing turnover. They're not looking to underpay people, but I think they're realizing that when there's dignity and um, the ability to provide mm-hmm. care the way they want to provide care, they're not looking to leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I would have, if I could put the, a more holistic t- subtitle, it would have included respect and opportunity for success, right? Thriving in front of your customer or patient all the time. Um, those, I put them all into meaning and dignity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, with, with the book of uh, making the case for good jobs, you've mentioned in particular lower turnover and, you know, in healthcare in particular, the cost of turnover is extremely high. Um, and, and there's a, a great business case to be made, but it, there, there seems to be a difference between, um, I don't know, like, you know, to think of MIT again, systems thinking, system, yeah. di- system yeah. dynamics. Yes. And some of this doesn't seem like the world's most complicated system dynamics model, comparing systems thinking to simple thinking. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if a company, you, you, as you write about a retailer, you know, only got a 2% margin. Healthcare again might have a really low margin like that. If they say, "Well, we can't afford," look, we we can't give up that margin. We can't afford it. Versus thinking we can't afford not to. Yeah. Have, have you helped organizations kind of test this idea yes. that increasing wages then does have this return? Yes, and it's not just increasing wages; it's implementing a whole system. But what when we we run oftentimes two day workshops with companies, and very quickly they realize that they're already paying for low pay and high turnover. They're already paying for it. They're paying for it with turnover cost. They're paying for it with lost sales. They're paying for it with higher product costs, overtime costs, mistakes, and and low productivity. So they're already paying for that financially. And even more than that, when they design a whole system based on turnover, then they can't, it's, it's an inhumane, vulnerable system and it's an uncompetitive system. So the competitive costs are even bigger uh, because when they operate with high turnover and low pay, they end up, this is the system dynamics part perhaps, but they end up making so many interrelated decisions that make their system weak. For example, I call this in the book, um, the, the case for good jobs, I call this uh, corporate disabilities. 
And, and I mentioned the five corporate disabilities. And these are the things that you just can't do when you operate with high turnover. You can't hire the right person and train them well because your managers are constantly fighting fires. You can't empower people and create trust because when you haven't hired the right people and you haven't trained them well, of course you don't want to empower them and you put in so many controls and, and remove decision-making as much as possible, which of course some of the decisions end up being bad decisions. The third is, you can't match capacity. You're constantly understaffed, or or maybe you're, you're over. You know, you go back and forth between being overstaffed and understaffed. And the fourth disability is that you can't consistently have strong managers and unit managers. I have seen, and you, I mean, from our LFM program, you would have seen that factory managers, store managers, restaurant managers, they're arguably the most important people in the organization. Um, and you can't have strong managers in a high turnover system. And the fifth disability is you can't have high expectations. So this entire system, companies see, wow, this is not a system that's designed to help us win with our customers and adapt to changes in the future. And it's no fit for what's coming up with demographics and labor shortages and higher um higher minimum wages and increase labor uh, costs that companies will have to end up incurring anyway yeah yeah and so I mean, you you touched on something i was going to ask you about um with tight labor markets mm-hmm. um greater competition for talent and and people to fill jobs of different types is uh, it seems like there's a, a greater need for the good job strategy, is there, is there greater interest being driven by kind of some of these changes of people leaving the workforce um, because of COVID times or other reasons and, and, and the battle for talent? Yeah. And now baby boomers are retiring. Yeah. People are having fewer kids. So economists are expecting that there to be more jobs than there are people who can take them. So in that environment, and minimum wages are increasing in lots of cities, lots of states. So labor costs will rise, wages will rise. And if companies don't end up changing their system, they're going to have to have higher labor costs, but no drop in their turnover and no improvement in their productivity, right? But if they adopt a good job system, the good job strategy, then those people costs or higher people costs are investments. Investments with a very strong return. That's what you see in a company like Costco or HEB or Quick Trip. You know, they pay more, but they have a heavy return on that investment because they redesign the job for high productivity and high contribution. Mm-hmm. And in the HBR article, and I think in the, in the new book here, you mentioned Sam's Club mm-hmm. compared to Costco, who was featured in the first book. Is this a case where? I mean, is there a parallel to let you, when I started my career at General Motors in the mid nineties, they were playing catch up to Toyota. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how strong the parallel would be. Is it Sam's Club being awakened to some of these ideas or are they, are they noticing Costco as their prime competitor and, and trying to catch up or emulate them? Yeah, I think feeling that competitive pressure is um, a lot more obvious when you have such a strong competitor in your market, right? Costco is one of the best companies, best retailers in the world. And when you have them as a competitor, um, you feel the pain. You feel the pain in terms of your sales lost. Uh, you feel the pain in terms of how you look in the eyes of your customers and investors. So, so I imagine that having such a strong competitor, um, awaken them. Um, but they were also seeing, you know, poor performance in their stores. So productivity was low. Um, they they didn't know where their inventory was. Like they 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 had all sorts of inventory problems and they wanted to win in the omni-channel world to be able to provide their customers a frictionless experience, whether they buy online or in the store, but to create that frictionless omni experience, you need your inventory data to be accurate. You need your products to be in the right place. And you can't have that strong execution, again, if you have high turnover. Um, so, so, So I think once they decided that we want to focus on our customers, our members, and we want to be the best, then it was obvious for them to make the types of changes that they had to make. And they made some huge changes. 
And and I think you said in that HBR article, which I think was an excerpt from the book, was that the company where they had announced some changes and the stock price took a pretty big immediate hit? Yeah, that was it. It wasn't uh, Sam's Club's changes, but it was their parent company, Walmart. Oh, okay. And when Walmart announced, I think it was 2015 or 2016. Um, but when they, so in 2015, they um, they told the street that they were going to raise pay. But then several months later, they told how much that increase would cost them. And then there was an immediate drop in their stock price. Now that drop didn't stay a long time. But can you imagine, Mark, being the leader of that company and seeing that your investors, you're, you think you're doing the right thing for your customers, for your performance, for your employees, and your investors' reaction is, hey, we're going to penalize you. Right. But you know, to others, that might have seemed like a buying opportunity. You know, it's this difference between you know, investors aren't always known for being long-term Yes. And I mean, I tell my students and I tell others, investors don't run your company, right? You, you know, leaders run their companies. Um, They investors let them know what's important to them, but there are also so many different types of investors, right? So there are those uh, who are there for the long term and yeah, there are different types of investors. Not all investors are alike. And some CEOs are are more willing to try to ride out that storm of saying, I'm doing what's best for the long term. You, you might come back to us someday. <laughs> yeah. And you know who was the best at that was Jeff Bezos. I mean, he was, I, I, I maybe not the best, but he was great at that. Telling investors, look, I'm doing what I think is the right thing for Amazon in the long term. And if you don't like it, then go buy another stock. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I know I've asked a little bit about pay and you're, you're right to point me back toward the good jobs system and mm-hmm. thinking of that maybe along the lines of the Toyota production system, right? These are each a system. Mm-hmm. And we know, you know, with Lean and TPS, there are many, many examples that illustrate the risk of trying to copy just one or two pieces yes. of a system. Um, it's probably inevitable that some of that happens around the good job strategy. People say, well, that sounds good, and that, but I don't like that. So you know, it's not going to have the same effect. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and um, you know, you have that podcast about mistakes. I, we made lots of mistakes along the way when we started helping companies too. And one of the things that I've learned um, was that you also can't copy Toyota production system implementation for any other system implementation. So the one of the companies that we worked with early on, um, it was a supermarket chain. And again, the way that I learned about system implementation is you do a model line, right? You, I mean, you um you go into an area and you try to implement that system in an area, you start with small changes, right? That creates momentum. And what we learned. First, we saw the power of small changes and how it could motivate people. But we also learned, Mark, that in these very high turnover environments where there's so much instability in people and where there's so much instability in workload because of, you know, because of um, all the upstream functions and the decisions that they make, that type of small incremental change is not the way to start this transformation. So one of the things that we learned was to make big upstream changes as quickly as possible to get out of the vicious cycle as quickly as possible. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting insight and reflection on not just the, the difference between knowing what the system is and how to bring the system to be. I mean, bringing it back to system dynamics language, it seems like it's a matter of finding the high leverage point. Yes. Is what you're describing with that big meaningful change. Is that fair to say? Yes. We found those. Yeah. And and interestingly, then because now we've worked with over two dozen companies, we have been able to see that there are similar high leverage points. Uh, so now when we work with companies that find themselves in this in this environment, in this vicious cycle with all those corporate disabilities and many things that they can't do, uh, we say, okay, 
what are the first set of changes that you can do to get out of the vicious cycle? And we group them under two. One of them is around subtracting workload and subtracting workload variability. So what are those upstream changes you can make in product design, in logistics, in, in sales, in marketing? Um, to give you an example, Sam's Club, um, they reduce their product variety by about 25% pretty early on in their journey, right? When you can make that type of subtraction, now that improvement in productivity, et cetera, enables you to make big pay raises. So for, and, and that's a set of second set of changes that we recommend. We say, make pay increases as much as possible, as early as possible. So for Sam's Club, their initial pay increases were from $5 to $7 an hour, from a basis of $15 an hour. Can you imagine? You're a, you're a bakery specialist. You used to make $15 an hour. Now you're making $22 an hour. Your life is different, right? And, and they also increased um, uh, predictability and stability of schedules so that people knew they could count on the hours. So, so and, and, and it's not just Sam's Club. I mean, one of the companies, Mudbay, they had 2% profit margins. And their labor costs were almost 15% of their sales. And they increased pay by 24% over three years. And again, make that pay investment as early as possible, as much as possible. And the way that they paid for it is they also subtracted a ton of workload and workload variability. Right. Right. So those those, those pieces of the system, it's not just labor rates, but it's more it's a, the productivity question mm-hmm. that that product that that labor cost per unit of work is not going to go up as much as the per exactly. hour pay rate um and that's it seems like another example where a company would get in trouble of of seeing headlines to say okay well we're gonna we're gonna boost pay as well but not embrace the rest of the good job system they wouldn't yes again, expect to see the same results then they might give up on it and then like Sorry, it's, since it's a lean podcast, I'll bring it back to lean or TPS a little bit. Organizations maybe try to copy part of the system and then they give up on it and they draw, which I, I think is an incorrect conclusion. Of, oh, we tried lean and it didn't work. It didn't work. work. Yes. And, you know, Mark, bringing this to lean um, and, and employee turnover and stability if you remember the Toyota house, of course you'll remember. I mean, there are the two pillars. There's the Jidoka and Just in Time, right? And underneath there is Kaizen, Standard Work, and something, Hijunka, I think, those that. But behind that, underneath all of that is stability. And one of that, the foundation is stability. And there's the machine stability, there's material uh, stability, there's process stability, but there's also worker stability. TPS doesn't work if you have high turnover. Jamie Bonini, Jamie oftentimes, you know, we, we discuss these environments and Jamie says, Zeynep, you know, you can't, you can't operate with 30% turnover. And I say, Jamie, in this world, we, we deal with 100% turnover and we're trying to bring it down to 50%, 40%. Um, but TPS or lean doesn't work with high turnover. Um, but you'll see... Like fulfillment centers, famous companies saying the reason we can do all of this is because we practice lean. I'm like, mm-hmm. you're not practicing lean. Lean is not lean and mean. Lean is right. different. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's always that question of which version of that word <laughs> is yes. using because um that 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 word it gets in the way. Yeah. But the more, you know, the more important thing is back to these practices of, you know, I think of um a case study that I wasn't involved in, but have heard about and helped write about. It was um, a home healthcare organization and home hospice. It was part of a larger health system. Their starting point turnover, annual turnover rate was 80%. Yeah. And they realized how many problems that was causing and their approach to it. I don't, I wouldn't say it, it would be reminiscent of a good job strategy, right? Because it involved looking at pay, but more importantly, it was, um, looking at lean, looking at workloads. And then I think back to the word dignity and the subtitle of your book, they had a very strong emphasis on safety mm-hmm. because going into people's homes mm-hmm. is a can be a very dangerous, unpredictable, unpredictable environment, whether it's dogs or a dangerous family member. You know, they they really put this emphasis on mm-hmm. understanding and addressing 
um, safety risks and making that commitment. And, and they got their turnover rates down to 20% within a year. And, and, and they, you know, realizing that the, the, the ROI, if someone was forced to calculate it on that, is enormous, even just looking at the cost of turnover alone. But as you've touched on, there's all these other ripple effects and, and benefits. Yeah, and the cost of turnover, what we find, we, what we have found at least in our work is it can range from 10% to 25% of payroll dollars that companies spend. Um, there's one context where we saw turnover to be as high as 45% of payroll dollars, but that was because it was a financial services setting. These call center employees had to be licensed, so it was really high. But the biggest things were the lost sales, the lost productivity, et cetera. Home health is a really interesting setting because regulations probably could be improved to make it easier for home health aides to be cross-trained and to be able to do more for the people that they're caring for as well. And, and there's the question of not just subtracting workload, but looking at who is doing what. I'm more mm -hmm. familiar with the hospital setting of looking at um, what nurses are doing. Nurses are a very uh, limited and expensive resource. I'm sorry, mm -hmm. to, I hate using language like that. But um, nurses, uh, like, look at what, what nurses are doing versus um techs and versus what housekeeping are doing. I mean, no disrespect to people in lower paid grades or lower um, license and certification, but it seems like part of it is it's not just subtracting workload, but subtracting non-nurse workload from nurses so that they can feel more fulfilled and satisfied with what they're doing. Yes. I will say yes and no at the same time, Mark, because one of the things that we also see is how important ownership is. Um, I had recent experiences in hospitals where I've been handed over to so many different people and really reduce my experience as a patient. And I imagine for nurses too, when there are so many handovers and they can't feel like they own, not ownership of the patient, but they, they you know what I'm saying? Like they, right. they don't. Continuity. Not con continuity. Um, maybe they don't mind some of the work. Maybe they they would be okay with if, if they felt like they really understood the patient and they really understood their needs and and could take care of them. Um, in the good job system, one of the four operational choices is cross training, and that is cross training to do more customer facing tasks and non customer facing tasks, so that depending on demand, you have flexibility. I mean, basically flexibility stuff, but it also creates an ownership in an area that provides more um, meaning to people because they're owners of that area. They, they, draw, they, 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 they keep up with the performance. They constantly think about improving performance and that type of ownership creates um, more meaning in their work. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's, I, that's, that's a great point that you make. And I mean, I think there's, there's balance when you look at, you know, teamwork versus division of labor. Right. You know, I think there's a difference between jumping in to help out versus being continually mm -hmm. overburdened with, with tasks that somebody else should be doing. Mm -hmm. It's a problem of looking at system design. If a hospital is saving money by not having enough support staff, I don't know if that's really saving money, especially yep. then when nurses start feeling being overburdened, burned out, quitting and leaving. But it, it, it seems like like the cost of some of these strategies might be just a, a little bit hidden. Where I think of a parallel, you know, when, when I was at Sloan, we uh, a couple of LFM students got into a it got surprisingly heated debate with an economics professor about quality and the cost huh. of quality and the cost of poor quality. And he was making an argument like, well, at some point there's an optimal, there's an optimal. quality level. And we that we were not the audience for that. And you know, but yeah. you should have but, asked him, have you not read Charlie Fine's paper about improvement and right. how it's that colleague <laughs> down the hall? But so it's different <laughs> academic silos and 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 what it was. But you know, the cost of poor quality is not a single line item yeah. on the financial statement. The parallel that I was going to ask you about then, it seems like, if you will, the cost of bad jobs is similarly just kind of sprinkled all throughout the financial statement as opposed to being just a single obvious line item. Yes. Yes. Is there anything to create anything that could be done to create better visibility to that? Or is it more about coaching the executives to look for the hidden costs? 
Yeah, I'm so when we work with companies, one of the things that so we work with companies where we quantified all the financial costs associated with bad jobs, from turnover to um to all the operational, you know, mistakes, lost sales, etc. And to our surprise, Mark, just the financial costs alone wasn't enough for them to start a journey. I don't know if you remember the work at Starbucks uh, with Karen uh, from Lean Enterprise Institute. Karen Gaudet. She's been on this podcast. So she, I mean, she was in a region and there was significant improvement in performance in that region, right? They reduced turnover. They improved customer satisfaction. They improved productivity. Yet that wasn't enough for Starbucks to embrace operational excellence across a system. So what we have found is for companies to be able to adopt this, they have to feel like not doing this is going to threaten their business, right? Their survival. So Sam's Club, I think they said, oh my God, if we don't do this, we're going to lose. Mudbay said Mudbay is a pet store chain uh, based in based in uh, Washington State. They said if we omnichannel is going to you know Amazon is eating our sales right the omnichannel is 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 e-commerce is is eating our our sales if we don't provide a compelling reason for our customers to come to our stores we will not be able to survive is that competitive threat that enables companies to prioritize good jobs, which is prioritizing operations. And in fact, you know, good job system and Toyota production system are so similar. In this book, actually, I I, I say in, in, in chapter one, I say, you know, you might think that this is like Toyota production system and it 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 is, but it is it doesn't require as much operational competence as Toyota production system. Toyota, you know, the Toyota production system is like the Michael Jordan of problem solving. Right. So because it's a, you know, the way that Jamie and, and his colleagues at Toyota define it, you know, it's it's in a culture of engaged people improving performance all the time and they're solving problems one at a time. Now, there are tremendous technical things that go into the Toyota production system, the JIT, JDOCA, the standardized work, and and some organizations are not able to get to that level of operational excellence or problem solving, but they still have some continuous improvement system. Uh, so, so I say, you know, the, the good job strategy is like the level one for Toyota production system. You have a stable enough workforce, stable enough work, stable enough operations that now you can get to that higher order problem solving if you, if you aspire to. Yeah. And it seems like before organizations can even try to reach operational excellence, it sounds like the starting point that you describe in the article and a little bit what you shared here, it's more like operational indifference of just executives not valuing it, not thinking it's important. It's certainly not their job in a lot of mm-hmm. in a lot of cases. You said in the article, and final thing to ask you about here, you, you wrote, there's a grave disconnect between what's happening on the front lines mm-hmm. and what executives think. Yeah, is happening. It seems like a huge opportunity um, to close some of that gap, right? Yes, there are so many disconnects, and there is research done by Harvard Business School uh, scholars, and they show that CEOs spend three percent of their time in the front lines, six percent with customers, and seventy-two percent in meetings. Now, Jim Sinegal, who was running Costco, uh, he is the co-founder of Costco. When he was the CEO, he used to spend 200 days in the front lines because that's where you make the money, he would say. right? That's where your brand meets the customer. Now, when you don't spend time in the front lines, you don't know the work. You don't know what, what is preventing your employees from being able to do a good job. You don't know what is disrespectful to your employees because you haven't been there. Um, and we've also been surprised by how little executives know about the life of their employees. One of the companies that we work with, they were thinking about benefits for their caregivers. These are caregivers 
who many of them were single moms who had one or you know more than a job because they were making minimum wage and during one of their meetings one benefit that they thought about was to offer discounts on ski passes uh-huh. and huh yeah you know it's it's really demoralizing to hear something like this to even think that this would be a benefit Right. Your it's workers like, with value. Yeah. It's like offering like, oh, we have, I mean, it's one thing some companies partner up and you can, you know, buy that this might seem out of reach for some people. Like, oh, we've partnered up with this automaker because we're a supplier and you can get a discount on a new car when people are like, I can't even dream of buying a new car. It sounds like yeah. similar. I mean, discount. we had companies have attendance problems because people ran out of money for the bus. Yeah. So that 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 understanding and 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 empathy, something like that, would go a long way to create to to realizing what is required for a good job strategy. Yeah, you know, understanding empathy. Yeah. And what I have also seen, Mark, is that when workers work in that vicious cycle of poverty, they live in that vicious cycle of poverty. Executives see these workers; they see that they don't show up on time. They can't even execute the easiest task. They can't serve customers well. And their conclusion is these employees are not worthy of higher pay, right? So they attribute that, again, in a very Toyota lean or or operational excellence TQM type of way, they attribute it to the person, not to the system that drives that person's performance. So Again, if they spent more time with the workers, and I ask my students, I say, during your last year at Sloan, get a frontline job. Work as a part-time frontline employee because then, one, you're going to understand all those upstream decisions that you're going to be making that will that makes the frontline's job harder. And two, you have empathy for the people that you will be serving, and you'll have humility because you'll see that they have so many ideas to improve. And no one listens to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I appreciate what you're doing to try to, you know, open people's eyes and, and influence, um, you know, companies through through your books and through the Good Jobs Institute. Um, it's It's been nice following your, your progress and I'm excited. Congratulations again on, on the new book here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Well, thank you. Hopefully um, sooner than another eight years. <laughs> to talk about Hopefully. Although more. I don't know if I'm going to write another book. Well, but I'm sure there will be progress and, and maybe um, you know some positive updates to come back to. Yes. Um, again, uh, we've been joined today. Uh, Zainab Tan, her most recent book is The Case for Good Jobs, How Great Companies Bring Dignity, Pay, and Meaning to everyone's work. Um, Congratulations again, and I hope everyone goes and and gets the book. Thank you. And again, for links to buy the book and more, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 477. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.